Welcome to the latest Funds Fan Podcast. I'm Carl Caldwell, your host and collectives editor at Interactive Investor. As usual, in the podcast, we have a fund manager interview coming up and also our fund spotlight feature. But firstly, I'm joined by Tom Bailey, who regular listeners will know is the ETF editor at Interact Investor. Me and Tom are going to chat through a couple of fund and investment trust news items. Tom, let's start off with global dividends. The Janice Henderson Global Dividend Report was published towards the end of May. This is a study that each quarter analyzes dividends paid by the 1,200 largest global companies. Therefore, it does give a very good measure of the outlook for global dividends. Tom, you covered the report on ii.co.uk. What were the key takeaways and findings? Yeah, so it showed that global dividends continues to decline in the first quarter of uh, this year, um, although at a slower pace uh, than it has since the pandemic started. So the report uh, takes the first three months of 2021 and compares them to the first three months of 2020. Uh, and it showed that headline dividend payments, I mean, special dividends are included, fell by 2.9% uh, on a year-on-year basis. Uh, meanwhile, underlying payments fell by 1.7%. But the decline is much smaller than we've seen previously. It's positive, even though it's still declining. And Jane Henderson is much more bullish now on, on the prospects of dividend growth this year. So the report um, shows that the, they've upgraded their expectations for global dividend growth in 2021 to be 8.4% on a headline basis. Previously, they'd um, said their best case scenario was a 5% growth rate. So that was good. And separately, the dividend monitor report by Link, which covers just the UK market and was published in late April, also has a brighter outlook for dividends. Link pointed out that half of UK companies either increased, restarted or held their dividends steady in the first quarter of this year compared to just one third in the fourth quarter of 2020. Investors in UK equity income funds will certainly be hoping that the improving picture for the dividend outlook will translate into a recovery in dividend growth. In 2020, the average fund in that sector cut its dividend by 29%. But investment trusts obviously were able to uh, increase their payments often uh, due to the structure. The structure of investment trust allows them to hold back dividend payments in the good years and use those and put them in their reserves and then make use of those in, in years like last year when dividends have been cut to ensure that they're able to still maintain or even increase payments. So many of these kind of big income investment trust stores like City of London, they've got a record of increasing dividends for, for decades, year after year. So they, they've always going to try and dip into their reserves and, and, and make sure they increase payments, even if the, the actual payments they're receiving from the companies in their portfolio are not looking good. Yes, that's that's right, Tom. Um, just over nine in 10 UK equity income investment trusts increased their dividends in 2020. And if you, if you want income consistency, then investment trusts are a superior option over funds. You will get a smoother ride due to um, what Tom mentioned there about the, the, the structure and how it differs from open-ended funds. But the, there is a trade-off. Um, some of those dividend hero investment trusts, which have raised their dividends for 30, 40, or even 50 years plus, which are remarkable track records. But today, some of those trusts have small dividend yields. So if you're looking for a high starting yield or a yield in line with the market, of say at least 4% for the UK, then you may need to look elsewhere. 
overall, there is increasing optimism around dividends for the rest of the year, particularly for the UK market as the economy reopens. As we know, forecasts and predictions should not be taken as gospel. And although it may still turn out to be a good call, so far this year, a region that a number of fund managers were backing to outperform has been relatively flat. And that region is the emerging markets. Tom, why have emerging markets not benefited from the improving economic outlook? Yeah, so as, as you said, there, there was all sorts of commentary tipping emerging markets uh, for this year with global growth looking good. Um, but it's not happened uh, for emerging markets. The MSCI Emerging Market Index has lost about 1% year to date, uh, while the FTSE Emerging Index has lost about half a percent. These aren't disastrous losses, but compared to, say, the performance of the S&P 500, the FTSE 100, the European indices, global indices, it, it's, it's way behind. Why has it happened? It would be tempting to kind of think of it in terms of the COVID outbreaks that happened in many emerging markets, Brazil, but most notably India. But it doesn't quite make sense because India's index has returned something like 4% since the start of the year. So that's better than the emerging market average. Um, so what I think we need to do is in- instead kind of consider actually what is the nature of the EM index today. So the MSI Emerging Market Index is now about 40% China. And on top of that, about 40 to 50% of the stocks in the index can be broadly defined as tech. So that includes obviously information technology, which is a, a explicit sector, but there's also uh, consumer services and consumer discretionary, which you find many of the big Chinese and other emerging market tech platform companies, Alibaba, Tencent, Meituan. So these are all very growth kind of tech companies and they dominate the index now. And I think that's kind of what's made the EM index struggle. So as we've seen globally and particularly in the US, there's been this move away from growth stocks to cyclical stocks and, and emerging markets have been a victim of that uh, due to the, the nature of the index now. You can see, though, in, in other emerging market um, economies, so Russia, for example, which is much more energy value, cyclical, uh, it, it's done better. But that isn't the EM index anymore. It used to be it used to be very dominated by these kind of companies, but it's, it's changed. In terms of fund and investment trust performance, just to add to the index returns that you mentioned, Tom, from the start of the year to the 21st of May, figures from FE Analytics show that the average global emerging markets investment trust is up 3.8%. And the average global emerging markets fund is up 0.7%. So the average fund has returned in line with the MSCI emerging market index, but the average investment trust has outperformed by a couple of percent. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of those big kind of EM funds will be overweight, the Chinese and uh, emerging market kind of growthy tech stocks uh, and that's obviously because they're good companies, but the, the market value is not being kind to them. Although you'll find many of these uh, investment trusts and funds also have, uh, say, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing as their largest weighting. And that, that company's done well this year uh, because of the, the, the global chip shortage. And of course, anyone investing in an emerging market fund or investment trust should be doing so for the long term, holding ideally for at least a decade to even out all the volatility that comes part and parcel with investing in the region in pursuit of potentially higher longer-term returns compared to developed markets. Our fund manager guest for this episode is Alistair McKinnon of the Scottish Investment Trust. So Alistair, just before our interview this morning, there was an announcement from the board that it will be undertaking a review of the future investment management arrangements of the Scottish Investment Trust. What's your reaction to that? 
Um, I think it's a very positive development. You need to have strategic clarity with whatever investment vehicle or in, any investment product. If you look over the last few years, being a contrarian investor hasn't worked as well as other ways of investing. And I think it's really good to step back and say, what is the best way to invest? There's different ways to invest at different points in the cycle, I'd say. For me, being a contrarian investor offers that risk reward that personally I find quite attractive. And arguably, we're on the cusp of a big rotation from, or actually maybe it's even started, I don't know, what what might you call it? A momentum style of investing towards a bit more of a a bit more of a value type way of investing, i.e. people looking at what companies' fundamentals are rather than potentially what their stories are. So there we go. That, that, that's um, where we are. And I think, but overall, a positive development. And could you give a quick overview of how you invest in a contrarian investment style? What we think is that there's tens of thousands of people analysing stocks and funds and trends and commodity prices and so on. In contrast to when I started my career, you know, when I started my career in the late 90s, it was really hard to get information. For example, I remember I was actually quite shocked the first place I joined because I went having seen dealing rooms and so on on the TV. I kind of expected the the firm I joined would have sort of state of the art systems. But when I got in, they had a CFAX terminal and we basically had a sort of telephone directory that was replaced once a week with the statistics about the various companies. And if you wanted to find out more about a company, you had to send away for the report and accounts, which would take three or four days. Now, literally, you know, you could find out about a company almost anywhere in the world in 10 seconds. You, know, you can download its report and accounts and Google all the recent news. And that's a big change. So I think what we're, where we say is there's huge amounts of data out there now, and it's analyzed to death. But the one thing that, that people cannot tolerate is not performing as well as whatever benchmark you might use or proxy for an index in the short term, particularly in professional investors, they very much have to follow the crowd because basically that's what their jobs depend on. So they're very much wired into just going to buy things. If it's a big index weight, we've got to buy it. If it's going up, we've got to buy it. Whereas I suppose what we're doing is we're saying, well, look, I've seen three or four cycles off that. It always ends badly when people start just chasing things that go up. Uh, you never know when it ends badly, but in those crazy periods, there are actually unbelievable opportunities elsewhere. I think for us, we're sort of saying we're ignoring what we would call the overloved, overhyped areas of the market, the bubble areas of the market. And we're really looking in the undervalued, out unloved areas of the market because the way markets work, the way commentators work, the way journalists work, the way economists work, the way the financial TV works is they hype up whatever's working. You know, a couple of months ago, it was Bitcoin. If you put on the financial news, there was nothing else. And then suddenly, it goes up an awful lot and then it crashes. Come back in a month and the financial TV will be talking about something completely different, whatever it is that's working. And they'll just have forgotten all about what they were talking about. And I think what we're saying is, well, in the real world, you've got to be consistent. You can't always just chase the shiny thing because if you chase the shiny thing and then it falls, that's not a, a made up loss. It's a real loss. So we want to try and avoid that and keep them where we think the risk reward is much better effectively. Well, since the um, start of November, the value style of investing has certainly been uh, working after spending um, around a decade in the wilderness. A number of economically sensitive stocks have performed well in that period. Is there more to come? Are the valuations still cheap? Well, what do these sort of um, the sort of stocks you're talking about? What do they most 
respond to. They respond to basically higher, whatever it is they do or manufacture, they respond to higher prices. And what causes higher prices? It's economic growth. And what's causing the economic growth just now? Well, it's all the printed money. Now, we could have a debate, is that a good thing? We'd possibly say it would be better if it wasn't printed money, but uh, it is what it is. And that's what the economy is responding to. And that's what these stocks will respond to. And in the big picture sense, are they, how do they look in a market context? Well, you've had 10 years of particular areas of the market, particularly in technology and disruptive areas. And people love these stocks to death. You know, they know exactly what they do. And there's very good reasons they like them. And also some of these stocks where they can grind out, you know, two or 3% sales growth per annum, um, these sort of everyday essential type stocks. These are great companies. They've done really well. They're valued accordingly. And it's all now about what happens next. It's the incremental change. Now we would say, actually in these loved areas of the market, the incremental change becomes negative. Take a video streaming service, say like Netflix. Well, I didn't sign up for Netflix, but I did sign up for a video streaming service at the beginning of the pandemic. There was nothing else to do. And I cancelled it fairly recently. And why did I do that? Because I kind of felt I'd watched everything on it. Didn't save a lot per month, but it was it was enough to, to say, well, why not cancel it? And just incrementally, if you didn't sign up for, say, a video streaming service in the pandemic, you never will. If you weren't doing all your shopping online in the pandemic, then you never will. And we're now moving away from that extreme situation into a bit more of a, well, I'm not going to say a normal situation, but a bit more of a balanced situation. So you've got incremental disappointment coming there. On the flip side, you've got the, um, I guess, these areas of the market that really are responding to global growth. You know, oil companies being a great example. You know, oil hit its high in 2008, $147 a barrel, um, if I recall correctly. And really, since then, the global economy in aggregate has been in a bit of a, it's been in the doldrums really. And we're only just starting to see it come to life. So, you know, a lot of companies involved in uh, extraction and so on look pretty attractive. They've got good dividend yields. The valuations look reasonable in an absolute context and also reasonable in a relative context. And also I think if you think we're entering an inflationary period, which personally, I think we almost certainly are, these sorts of stocks will do better in those sorts of circumstances. They'll be able to pass on price increases. Whereas let's say, I don't know, let's say you're Microsoft, you're able to pass on quite a substantial price increase every year to your customers. You know, let's say it was 3% per annum. You've been able to do that consistently for 20 years. You probably still be able to do that for the next 20 years because it's, you know, it's kind of embedded in so many processes. But would you be able to pass on a 10% increase Possibly not, because then people would start saying, actually, is there a better way of doing this? It's a big hassle, you know, even thinking of the company, we've got a relatively small team. Changing from Microsoft would be a big hassle. We wouldn't want to do it readily, but I suppose if they tried to put the prices up too much, we would. Whereas when you're about, you're filling up your car, well, you either fill it up or you don't. There's not really a lot of choice about it. So, so many things seem to favour those areas of the market much more readily. You mentioned inflation. How much of a concern is it? And how do you think the trust would fare if inflation did take off? Well, it's not a concern to us because we expect it. So we would expect the trust in those circumstances to hopefully perform well. We've got a substantial position in gold miners for two reasons. Um, first of all, we see gold as 
the best hedge against inflation that exists. It's the oldest currency that we have. It stood the test of time. And if you look back through history, it was actually, it was um, Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad wrote a book about the value of gold through history. His research suggested that an acre of arable land has always cost about the same as an ounce of gold. A fine men's man's suit has cost about an ounce of gold. Now, I must admit, if I go to my local Marks and Spencers, the suits do not cost an ounce of gold, but I guess he's meaning more a Savile Row type thing. So gold holds its value at a time of inflation. And inflation isn't a new thing. You know, it's it's been around as long as we've had money controlled by a central body, there's been inflation because when you when you can't pay the bills, guess what's the easy thing to do? Print more of it. So we like the outlook for gold in that inflation real terms sort of preserve your purchasing power. And we really like the gold miners because when I first started looking at gold really closely, 2004, you know, I'd looked at it before then. But in 2004, I started to think, you know, why is gold keep going up? Uh, I don't get it because, you know, I thought it was just a useless rock or that was kind of the narrative that had been chucked at me. And then I started reading a bit more and I thought, all right, I get it now. It's, It's money. Basically, at that time in 2004, that was the early stages or maybe the middle stages of the whole housing banking boom that we saw that eventually blew up in 2008. And the gold price was just responding to the huge increase in the money supply. But I looked at the gold miners at that time and I thought these are basically uninvestable because they're run for the management teams. They are run to build an empire rather than return to shareholders. Oh, and by the way, the Gold Council have just launched a a gold ETF. So why would you buy a miner? You know, you can get direct exposure to gold through a gold ETF, or you can take a big risk on a miner that you don't know if they're even going to be aligned with shareholders' interests. Fast forward to today, though, the gold ETFs have won, comprehensively won. And the gold miners are now in this niche position where they're saying, goodness me, you know, we have to do something. Otherwise, you know, there's no point in us. We'll just become part of a Rio Tinto or something. We'll just become another metal that's dug out of the ground. So they've merged, huge mergers in the sector. They're very much focused on shareholder value. And so Overall, the valuations look in a market context really quite attractive. The dividend yields are attractive. And obviously, the outlook for gold itself looks really attractive. But just onto your inflation point uh, more broadly, it's coming. You know, house pr- I always think house prices are the best proxy we have for inflation because the official measures of inflation are subject to how, the, how it's measured. And the way inflation's measured was particularly fine-tuned in the 70s and 80s. And the goal was to make it as low as possible because it suited governments to have it as low as possible. So for example, the crazy thing is house prices aren't in inflation measures. You have um, something called owner's adjusted rent because the, the logic is that people don't have to buy a house. They could rent a house. So it's more important to measure the cost of getting shelter rather than the cost of buying a house. Now, I think that's wrong because I think for a lot of people, renters and buyers, the price of a house has a huge impact on the cost of housing. There's another logic as well that um, I think they call it a hedonic adjustment, whereby they'll say, well, if you are eating steak and you can no longer afford steak, if you buy chicken, that's just as good. And if you can no longer afford chicken, if you can afford dog food, then that's just as good. But as long as you're buying some sort of form of meat, then the inflation statistics are indifferent. They just 
say that there's a, a change about the whole thing. So, so that's why the inflation statistics don't capture it. So we're in the midst of a huge inflationary boom and we're seeing it all around us. Look, I think the price of everything is going up. Everything I'm trying to buy seems to be going up in price. And there's shortages of things, partly because people have money. There's more money chasing the state or probably even less goods because of COVID restrictions. And it's because there's just more money around, people are prepared to spend it. And finally, given that you take a different view from the crowd, what would you say at the moment is the most unfashionable company that the trust has an investment in? Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, it's what we specialize in. You know, we're looking for the unfashionable things. I think, look, I've talked about gold and gold miners. They are extremely unfashionable. And I think that will change. But maybe just looking, I mean, just looking at some of the the holdings, an interesting one that we've got that's actually done okay of late is BT, telecoms provider. They were under a a massive cosh for, first of all, they had a huge pension problem. Second of all, they had a huge regulatory problem because the regulator was saying to BT, look, you're basically an incumbent. You are um, kind of ripping off the customer and we want you to keep lowering your bills. Oh, and by the way, we want you to open up your network to new competition. Oh, and also, by the way, we want you to build fiber to every single house. And what BT was pushing back was was saying, well, hold on. Um, we don't want to do that because the last time we built out uh, in a sort of... Uh, speculative manner to your requests you changed the rules once you built the the network and said oh no you can't you're earning too much money in that so they said look before we do that you need to give us some sort of clarity some sort of certainty but they didn't get it so there was a huge problem and bt share price got covered but where we are now is got a new chief executive in relatively new like last year or so he's been buying stock for himself that he didn't need to buy which is always a great sign also i think they're in a position where it's just time for things to change because you've had a big change in the regulatory structure in the UK, and particularly at the top. You've also had this pandemic where it's become very clear that the telecoms infrastructure is crucial. And, you know, government and regulators do like to tinker around with, you know, you see it with energy markets a lot. They like to tinker around. And in reality, you know, we just need it to work. And that ethos is much more prevalent now in the telecoms market. And that's really helping BT as the incumbent. And then in the pension fund side of things, well, just we probably leached the low for bond yields, I don't know, a year ago, let's say, maybe six months, nine months ago. And from here on in, as bond yields increase, it incrementally helps just that deficit issue. Because the big problem for all pension deficits has been the decline in interest rates in the last 20 years. It just makes it really hard to, on a actuarial point of view, balance the books. You just are continually shoveling in money and you, it's a big struggle to keep up. And we just think that whole process has changed as well. There you go, that's BT in a nutshell. As usual, the final part of the podcast is our fund spotlight feature. For this episode, it is Liberty's turn. Liberty is a fund analyst at Interactive Investor. So, Liberty, you've chosen a bond fund from Interactive Investors' ACE40 list. Tell us about it. PIMCO GIS Global Bond ESG Fund aims to maximise total return along with preservation of capital. Launched in early 2017, the fund has now grown to be a size of around £1.1 billion. 
It invests in investment-grade bonds and is not constrained into investing in a single region as it invests globally. Investment grade refers to the quality of a company's credit rating. And generally speaking, bonds rated investment grade have a lower risk of defaulting. It's managed by a well-resourced team led by Andrew Balls, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at PIMCO. Could you tell us about the environmental, social and governance screening process that the fund does in order to um, invest in an ethical manner? Yeah, so the bonds are selected according to PIMCO's internal ESG screening process, consisting of ESG exclusions to restrict investments in issuers fundamentally misaligned with sustainability practices, which include sectors such as controversial weapons, tobacco, adult entertainment and coal. And it aims to emphasise areas such as green, social and sustainable bonds, clean and renewable energy and low carbon solutions. It invests in best-in-class ESG issuers, which have attributes such as ambitious climate change strategies, a strong record on product safety and customer suitability, and diverse and independent board oversight. They also conduct engagement work to work with issuers to change ESG-related business practices, covering topics such as net zero emissions targets, gender pay gap, and data security standards. So where is the fund currently invested? So the portfolio is made up of government-related bonds mainly, as well as some exposure to corporate bonds, emerging market local debt and inflation-linked bonds. It also has a bias to the US at around 40% of the portfolio, and other key exposures include the UK, Japan and China. Some interesting holdings include the German government's first green bond, which supports Germany's sustainable finance programme, including clean technology and renewable energy projects. The Ford Foundation Social Bond, where proceeds support and strengthen non-profit organisations that are, are advancing the fight against inequality. And HSBC's SDG Bond, which is driving HSBC's sustainability policy with broad and proactive projects, including affordable housing. And finally, how does the fund stand out from the crowd? Well, the fund is within II's ACE 40 as a global bond core recommendation. It also has the ACE considers category, meaning the fund carefully considers a wide range of ESG issues and themes when balancing positive and negative factors. It has a highly experienced manager and team and the combination of a globally diverse fixed income portfolio offering the potential for investors to achieve returns consistent with other core bond strategies whilst also making a positive environmental and social impact through its ESG approach, makes it a unique option for investors. That's all for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Please like and subscribe. And of course, you can find lots more investment insight and ideas at ii.co.uk. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.